0: Hardini's media.
1: Totally Football Show. Play still suspended while we all re-watch old action. It's like a permanent Stockley Park. Still, Totally is here to round up the news, do our retro bit on 0405, let's be having you, and introduce the meaningful contest no virus can touch, the World Cup of Totally. Round one. Whose brain will reign as Duncan takes on Alvaro? It is the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Elvis Costello there with The weekend's Classified. As we say hello, listener, and welcome to another Totally Football Show. In today, we've got Sam Parkin joining us. Hi, James. Matt Davis-Adams is also with us. Matt? Hello, James. Michael Cox, hello.
0: Hi, James. Hi, everyone.
1: Good. That's them. You're here as well, listener. Shortly, we've got Duncan and Alvaro going in round one of the quiz. Woof. Sam, it's a busy time for you, though, isn't it? Because you've got big things happening.
2: Yes, the, the girlfriend's um, about to have our first child, so not ideal timing, but um, yeah, all seems to be going to plan and she's feeling a little bit different in the last 24, 48 hours. She's about five days late now, so hopeful mm-hmm. that we're going to be darting over to Kingston Hospital in the uh, next few days.
1: G- good luck. I was actually referencing you, you being uh, mentioned in the final <laughs> episode of BBC comedy This Country. That, that's <laughs> massive. Yeah, because it's exactly like when Swindon sold
3: Sam Park in switch Town. You know, we lost one of our finest ever strikers
4: that day. We did, yeah. But he had to go. You know, he was restless. Mm. Mm. He had to leave to progress his career. And the very least we could do was grant him his transfer request after years of exceptional service he gave to the club. And yeah, he did fail at Ipswich because ultimately he was massively out of his depth. His career just nosedived after that.
2: Could be a monumental week for me. It could be on par with my favourite goal at Ellen Road, backing up with a winning goal against Peterborough United uh, in 2000. No, not really. Um, yeah, that was that was great. A big honour. Um, I wish they'd have been a little bit more complimentary about me, um, yeah. possibly, but... If that's to be the final episode of this country, I'm very pleased that I made the cut. Right.
1: That show finishes, you go on. I think we know who the the real winner is here. (laughs) Matt and Michael, do you have any momentous news? Um,
4: Only to say that I had a lovely uh, direct message on Twitter from Charlie Cooper, who plays Curtin in this country, saying how happy he was that we'd mentioned it on the Totally Football League show, uh, Sam's cameo appearance and and, and how big a fan he was of the show and of Sam indeed, which was very, very kind of him.
1: Oh, that's nice. All right. Among other stories, uh, since our last show, uh, Norberto Solano who uh, just moved to Aston Villa in the uh, season we're going to be doing a little bit later on, Michael, got arrested this week in Peru for violating self-isolation rules to go to a party. Crikey.
0: Yeah, that's kind of what you want from Nobby Solano, isn't it? I mean, it's not really what you want. You don't want it from anyone. No one should be doing that. But if any Premier League player is going to do that, he's up there with the kind of Tino Aspires in terms of, you know, violating that kind of thing that I'd, I'd expect that to happen. Right. I feel Tino
1: would have taken it up even a level further still. Uh, violating self-isolation rules in a Barney outfit or whatever it, it was, in a Zorb ball. Or, uh, who can say uh, what Tina would come up with? Well, if anyone knows what else is new, it's the New York Times's
3: Rory Smith. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power.
1: I really enjoyed your long read on Miltman uh, this week. I was going to ask you, though, about the football. Um, and I see there's been some fresh thinking on getting things underway again. Where are we on that?
3: Well, it seems to change quite frequently, to be honest, unlike Milkman, who have got a, a fairly consistent surfeit of business at the moment. Um, I think there is a general consensus still to try and get the season finished. The Athletic published an interesting piece with an anonymous chairman uh, this week, citing a kind of increasing sense that it's it's morally dubious to play football in these circumstances. And I think I think everybody would agree with that entirely. And what slightly surprised me about it is that I don't think anyone's suggesting we play football in these circumstances. I think in the same way as lots of businesses will be thinking, right, what do we do if and when these lockdown restrictions end? The people in charge of football maybe don't want to be thinking about it. I'm sure they've all got families and stuff to worry about as well, but they kind of have to think, right, actually, how do we, what do we do to react when hopefully there is some sort of improvement in the situation? The consensus generally seems to be that they want to finish the season, and that's not changed. Uh, I spoke to someone in Italy, actually, funnily enough, yesterday, who suggested that he he thought that it was a possibility they might be playing again in June. Uh, I, I would imagine, given the situation in Italy, that would be behind closed doors. But we've seen in, a number of leads tend to come out and say that this is what this is what's going to happen. We're going to do this by hook or by crook. I think the president of the FIGC said that in in Italy. This week, the Bundesliga had a meeting in which they kind of mainly agreed financial packages and what have you to help uh, to help some of the smaller clubs. But they said as well that their their, their intent is to finish. Um, the only thing that kind of makes that slightly dubious, I guess, is what happened with the national league uh, this week, where steps three to six of the non-league pyramid, uh, which is a really catchy title kind of said that they were expunging all the results for the season. And that seemed at the time like it might set a precedent for what could happen elsewhere, except that I think 20 or 30 clubs are already uh, in the process of kind of lodging their displeasure with that decision because they feel it's unfair on them. And if you bear in mind, that's at a a level where the financial demands on those clubs are not nearly as kind of... uh, Significant as they are on the Premier League or the, or the the EFL, I think that reaction is quite telling. That if you tried to do this in the in the professional game, you would find a lot of objections and probably a lot of quite busy lawyers. So that was a long answer. The short answer is, not a vast amount has changed. Everyone's still working, and it seems to be moving towards a sort of real belief that they can, not a real belief, but a hope that they can they can finish the season at some point. But no one obviously knows when that point is.
1: Yeah, there have been a lot of talk about avoiding things. With the idea being, it's just the simplest way to annul everything. As you point out in a uh, in a thread on uh, social media, it's anything but simple when you look at the, the knock-on effects on, say, a club like Norwich getting a hundred million that they wouldn't otherwise get, or Spurs getting the money for being back in Europe if we take away this season's results, effectively started again, and equally uh, wipe out all the individual records uh, that have been set so far. Uh, by players around Europe. because the other option is just to get the Belarus authorities to bring some vodka and, uh, and tractors and,
3: and sort it all out for us. Well, exactly. They're still playing, so what's the problem? The, well, they've just started.
1: It's extraordinary, though. They've actually just started, haven't they?
3: Yeah, well, I noticed a couple of weeks ago that they, that they were playing, and I thought, that's strange enough anyway. And then I looked at the, the lead table, and they'd played... One round of games, and you think, well, look, you can't. St- there's no point starting the season. You know, if there were two or three games from the end, and they didn't have many cases, then you could maybe make a case. Look, just get through it, and that solves that solves one problem. Um, but they started the season, which is extraordinary, and they took various measures to kind of make it better. But they don't seem desperately serious about it. Alexander Lukashenko, the last dictator in Europe, has apparently declared the whole thing a Western psychosis. So I'm sure that's a that's a waste of everybody's mind mind in Minsk. Um, yeah, the the thing about voiding that kind of frustrates me and this is just me speaking as a as a person rather than as, as an authority on anything not that i'm ever an authority on anything is firstly the idea that it's morally better than waiting I don't, I don't i just don't get that the net result at the moment is the same no one's playing football it doesn't really matter what happens afterwards which season you pick up with it doesn't make any difference at all it's that's an admin thing it, it doesn't kind of suggest you're taking the virus more seriously if you cancel the football season and the other is this idea that it's easier i i I just don't see how it is. I think you you end up having not only a kind of problem in terms of Champions League and what have you in the Europa League next season, because you, you presumably have to revert to the 2018-19 standings or you're effectively acknowledging that this season did happen. But also you have issues of giving substantial amounts of money to teams who wouldn't otherwise have got them. And that then fundamentally alters the course of, those clubs existences you know Norwich get 120 million to it just for being in the Premier League that in all likelihood they wouldn't have got next season you you have clubs who will have budgeted rightly or wrongly to go up throughout the Leeds and they could well be kind of financially punished effectively for doing that this is West Brom's last year of parachute payments Leeds have invested heavily in Marcelo Bielsa's contract you know he's on the on the verge of delivering do they then just have to write that money off I I don't see that it's an easier solution. I think, as I said last week, it could well be that, that it reaches a point where that is the only possible solution. I don't see how you can freeze the table as things stand, not least because not all teams have played the same number of games. But I don't think we're at the point where voiding is is kind of the least worst option as things stand. I think as things stand, the, the least worst option is saying, let's wait and see when we can play again and hopefully allow ourselves enough time to do that. And it was Duncan uh, of this parish who uh, who pointed out that you might have to wipe the individual records, which means all that stuff about Erling Haaland never happened. Uh, and he's just a, a sort of tall Norwegian guy that no one's heard of, which would be a bit of a shame in a way.
1: Certainly would. Rory, thank you so much for holding our hands and, and, and leading us through the quite extraordinary uh, hypotheses that are out there. And uh, c- can we catch up with you for another
3: update soon? Uh, you can indeed. I'm not really sure. I've done a huge amount of, of handholding. There, it, this is... <laughs> The funny thing about all of this is is that we're not really used to this kind of news cycle that doesn't have an easy resolution, and it's hard for journalists. And I think it's quite hard for fans as well. That we're used to we're used to things that sort of happen and then stop, and that's the, the the easy narrative arc. And it like lasts a week. This could go on for months. And football isn't really set up to have to deal with problems that it has to face for months because it's such an instantaneous business. So it may well be that over the course of the next few weeks, not a vast amount happens. But if you want me to talk you through the not vast amount that has happened, I would be delighted, James.
1: Rory Smith of the New York Times, Michael Cox.
0: Yeah, I don't disagree with any of what Rory says. The only thing I do find slightly uh, peculiar is that, as Rory mentions, some people were suggesting that what happened from step three to step six at the non-league pyramid level would set some kind of precedent for what's going on higher up the the leagues. I mean, this is the seventh division. (laughs) I'm someone who does watch a lot of football at this level, and I can't see the FA or the Premier League or UEFA or anyone remotely relevant thinking oh hang on this is how they've done it at step three level with the seventh division of the league it just seems slightly um i mean even beyond you know the different financial implications at that level it just seems slightly irrelevant to me
1: I was wondering whether it was because voiding might might seem a simpler option, at least before you examine it more thoroughly. And thus, if one league does it, maybe it makes it easier for everybody else to do it. But I'm heartened to hear that uh, there are other plans afoot. Brilliant. Well, we're going to uh, return in a second or two with something very exciting. It is the first round of our Totally Football
4: Show quiz. I'm José Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Being on the front cover of Rolling Stone magazine special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special.
1: Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single
3: day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. Tees and C's at paddypower.com 18 Listener, we're not
1: going out and you're not going out. So why not brighten up this time at home by getting some in with a crate of craft beer from our pals at Beer 52. Now, typically, Beer 52 put eight beers in their cases, but because you listen to the Totally Football Show, they're going to chuck in another two bottles. So that's ten beers for free. All you pay is £4.95 for shipping b 52 are beer pioneers working with small batch breweries from all over the world to bring you hoppy IPAs, hazy pale ales and silky stouts from such places as the Czech Republic, New Zealand, Korea, and even here in the UK and Ireland. There's no minimum commitment with Beer 52. You can take this free case, try the beers, and if you decide it's not for you, you can pause or cancel your subscription at any time. It's entirely up to you. So head to beer52.com football and claim your free case of craft beer right now. That's the word beer and then the number 52.com slash football. One last time beer52.com slash football
4: On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media all right, listeners,
1: stick on the Nissan Dormer or the Colour Box. It's the World Cup of Totally, the definitive competition to find out which of our Totally pundits knows the most. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be pitting them against each other, your Raffers and your Daniels, your Embers and your Hornies, until we have the ultimate winner. And today, it's round one. Please meet your contestants.
3: Up first. A man who's been mainlining nothing but raw data and high-protein stats since his competition was announced. He is the wisdom from High Wycombe, part man, part spreadsheet, Duncan Trivial World, Alexander.
1: Duncan, welcome to the quiz. How are you feeling?
3: Yeah, excited and a little nervous.
1: Excellent. Let's now meet the man you'll be up against.
4: And his opponent, he's a commentator who's never knowingly
3: used an abbreviation when a full name will do, all the way from Peckham, and hoping to bask in his glory, Alvaro Valderrama's Bulls, Romeo. Alvaro
1: Romeo, que tal? Yeah, and I feel pumped, ready to rumble. Excellent, excellent. All right, well, you both know the rules. You're going to face a specialist subject each. And then later on, a final general knowledge contest for a place in the quarterfinals. Your specialist subjects are Duncan?
3: Uh, Premier League Golden Boot winners.
1: Right. And Álvaro? Guardiola's Barcelona in the 2008-2009 season. I can't wait. All right, Duncan, you're up first. On the Premier League Golden Boot, starting now, which player has shared the Premier League Golden Boot twice but never won it on his own? Michael Owen. Correct. Who is the only Golden Boot winner to score his goals for two different clubs in the same season?
3: Uh, Teddy Sheringham.
1: Correct. The clubs being Nottingham, Forest and Tottenham. Who was the last player to win the Golden Boot in the same season as winning the Premier League?
4: Uh Aguero?
1: No, I'm afraid that's incorrect. It's Robin van Persie, Man United, 2012-13. Four players have won the Golden Boot in the Premier League and the European Golden Shoe in the same season. Can you name three of them, or all four if you want to show off?
3: Um, Henri, uh, Ronaldo, Kevin Phillips,
1: maybe? That is three. Do you want to go for the fourth?
3: can't think. Oh, Suarez. Oh, Suarez.
1: Yeah. Yes, and you yeah. were there, I think. So on to question five. Who is the only player to win the Premier League Golden Boot and also be top scorer at a major international tournament in the same year?
3: Uh, Harry Kane.
1: Is incorrect. It's Alan Shearer at Euro 96. Duncan Alexander, at the end of that round, you've scored three out of five. Alvaro on Barcelona 2008-2009. Question one. Which player did Barcelona sign from Arsenal in the summer of 2008? Alexander Jalep. Correct. Three members of that Barcelona squad have also won the Premier League before this season. Can you name two of them, or all three, if you want to show off? I would say Thierry Henry. I would say Alexander Gled, and that's it. No, nope, I'm afraid you're incorrect. I've got Thierry Henry, Gerard Piquet and Ida Johnson. Yeah. Question three. Barcelona lost the first league game of that season to a team that would eventually be relegated. Which team? Numancia. Correct. Name three of the four goal scorers in Barcelona's 6-2 hammering of Real Madrid in the Bernabeu, or four. The word
0: Thierry Henry. Mm-hmm. They
1: were Lionel Messi, it was Gerard Pique That's and your Carles free. Puyol. That's is for splendid stuff. And this, to pull ahead of Duncan Alexander, who played in central defence alongside Gerard Pique in the Champions League final. Yaya Ture. Correct. Wow. So it's tight, but Alvaro Romeo holds a one-point lead ahead of the general knowledge round. Which listener will be coming up later on in the show, I know. How are you feeling, Duncan? A little bit disappointed with your performance there? Eh?
3: Yeah, a bit disappointed with the with the Harry Kane one at the end there. Um, yeah, got my Euros and my World Cup years mixed up. But, you know, it is what it is.
1: Have you got a big second half in you?
3: Hope so. I hope so, James.
1: All right. Alvaro, looking quietly confident. Disappointed with myself, really, because I knew from the beginning that Alexander Klepp never won the Premier League, but I couldn't come up with any name. So I had to say Klepp, because he played in Premier League. You set high standards, Alvaro. That's why we love you. We'll be back for the general knowledge round later on. Looking forward to that. Uh, Michael, uh, saw you doing the answers along uh, along with them there. You scored a phenomenal five out of five on Duncan's round and three out of five on Alvaro's Barcelona questions. But still, that that's scary stuff.
0: Yeah, disappointing from uh, Duncan. I must say, I haven't actually... Uh, specified my own specialist subjects yet so maybe Mm. I'll just go for the same specialist one as Duncan (laughs) because that would work out nicely. (laughs) Uh,
1: By the way are you curious to know who you've drawn in the competition?
0: Oh very eager to know yeah. Right Uh, you've drawn Matt
4: Davis Adams. No! (gasps) That's the worst possible draw for me we're both at home as well aren't we is the thing so there's no advantage Uh, but that's (laughs) 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 <laughs> that that that's the worst draw I, I could possibly yeah, have yeah. had. I'm absolutely devastated.
1: I think with a key specialist subject, Matt, yeah. you could you could you could maybe take this. But that's yeah. I mean, that's a huge first round game. That's a that's a semi final or a final in the first round for me. Uh, excellent. All right. Well, we'll be hearing uh, from Duncan and Alvaro later on here. Which one of those two guys makes it through to the quarters? question here in the meantime from at the bridge pod colon a chelsea fc podcaster colleagues of yours matt uh, they say which player would you want to self-isolate with for two weeks and why got to feel that's not really in the spirit of self-isolation the way i understand it but (laughs) were you to were you to you know basically self-isolate in company uh sam who, who would you choose as your partner
2: Um, I've been trying to think of someone who could cook, but I can only really recall a really bad come dine with me with ex footballers, which Neil Ruddock, Carton Palmer, and I think it was John Fashion, who were abysmal. So I'm going to sacrifice the food and go for my hero, uh, Sir Les Ferdinand. He'd be on board with what I've been doing, which has been getting up and dressing quite smart for the day. I think Sir Les would be on board with that. I think good personal hygiene comes to mind when I think of Sir Les immaculate. And, um, of course, i just quiz him about his, his QPR days, his goals and, you know, plot QPR's assault on the championship together over the next two weeks.
1: Magnificent. All right. Uh, if you're, you're
4: listening, Seles, as soon as the lockdown's over, get round to Sam's house and, and get to work
1: on that. Matt, who's your partner?
4: Oh, I mean, based on his social media output over the last week, he's got to be James Milner, I think. Uh, you know, larks, ahoy for for a fortnight. But also, you probably get some good stuff done. Like, my shed really needs a clear out. I think he'd be excellent at that. So, that plus, plus you know, good social content. Milner all the way for me.
0: Brilliant. Michael, have you got someone picked out? Uh, my first thought was, um, just because he's a rare footballer who has quite interesting music taste, would be Leighton Baines. Uh, he used to do a very interesting uh, music blog on Everton's website and I went back and looked at one of his uh, music blogs which was basically his best of 2012 albums and it included now I must admit I don't know but it was by an artist called Dr John and the album was called Locked Down so that would be perfect. Well, there you
1: go. (laughs) Very, very nice. Uh, Lobanovsky writes in and says, further to your mention of Beta Jerusalem on the pod, please consider Forever Pure for your flicks and kick section. This is uh, where we review football movies. It says Lobanovsky, Forever Pure has everything. Russian oligarch, political intrigue, heroes and villains, and trolling of super racist ultras. Check, check, checkity, check. Well, that's that's a fascinating one. I've not heard of Forever Pure before. Another suggestion here from Russ Eckel, Shaolin Soccer and The Miracle of Burn, the two best footy films in Russ Echol's opinion. All for Comedy Value when Saturday comes and the Awful Pele biopic. Well, uh, those are great uh, options uh, and probably we'll get to those soon enough. For this Thursday's show, we're going to be doing United Passions, the FIFA-funded uh, uh, film all about how the Swiss invented football with Tim Roth as set Blatter. And, and it's as, every bit as mind-boggling as it sounds. And it sounds, by the way, like this.
3: Now, the intellectuals can protest as much as they like with their banners and their tracts and speeches, but during the World
0: Cup, they only dream of one thing, that ball. And only that ball. Because football brings
3: consolation to all tragedies and sorrows.
1: Do... Uh, have a bang on it and uh, let us know your thoughts and who can last the most minutes. All that kind of thing. We'll be reviewing that on Thursday. Uh, Next up, here they come again, the shuffling ghosts of seasons past. It's zombie football.
4: I'm José Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Football bandits who actually understand management, special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power games, not special.
1: Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average forty thousand pound jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think
3: you're special. Daily jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by eleven pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T and C's at paddypower.com. 18 plus. Begambleaware.org. Zombie
1: football.
0: Dry your
2: eyes, mate. I know it's hard to take, but her mind has been made up. There's plenty more fish in the sea.
1: 2004-2005. The season football didn't so much jump the shark as book SeaWorld and do a backflip over the orca. While the world emoted to the sounds of the streets and dry your eyes, mate, this was a time when the England manager, the FA chief, and his secretary had a love triangle a season when Manchester City fielded two goalkeepers at the same time. When the nation's favourite chef got herself stewed on TV.
0: Let's be having you!
1: And two fresh-faced types from Europe named Rafa and Jose first pitched up in the Premier League. Michael Cox, you've called the 2004-2005 season a watershed moment.
0: Yeah, I just think the arrival of those two managers really changed the way football was contested. And if you go back to the opening weeks of that campaign... There was a lot of focus in in the media and newspapers about how defensive football had become. Um, Not just because of the introduction of those two, but when you look at what happened in the summer, Mourinho took Porto to winning the Champions League with a broadly defensive style of football. And then Greece incredibly won the Euros with an even more defensive style of football. And then the start of the campaign was Benitez had really changed Liverpool, made them a lot more defensive. Mourinho with the same at Chelsea albeit making them, of course, a much better side as well. And even Jacques Santini, who, who people forget, had a had a brief spell at Tottenham. He'd come from being in charge of France, which was at the time probably the biggest job in international football. And he was doing a similar thing there. So there were so many games at the start of the season between the big sides that were 0-0, 1-0. Um, and yeah, it just felt like football had become a, a lot more tactical and a lot more... Uh, defensive, I guess. Masters of
1: pragmatism, Jose and Rafa turning up at the same time. Imagine if Otto Rehhagel had come along as well. That would have been incredible. Uh, <laughs> Sam, you started your career at Chelsea. What did you make of of, of the the Mourinho reboot?
2: I suppose I was in a good position to see that the progression. Firstly, under Glenn Hoddle, actually going way back when. Uh, then Rudiger, obviously Viali and then. There was, there was Cups won during their tenures and then Ranieri, I think, got a better calibre of player and got them into the Champions League, his final works at the club. Um, so I wasn't surprised really with the quality of the players that, that came in. Um, and just thinking back to that season from a, a Chelsea perspective, I think you, you think of it as maybe the 4-3-3 and the flying wingers and the, the one central striker. And looking back at the season, he actually started with a front two and... Kesman was there and Drogba and Johnson and kind of rotated those three in the early weeks of the season. It wasn't until they lost against Manchester City in the, the October, their only defeat of the season, that he actually went to that 4-3-3, which he persisted with for the majority of that that season. And that's what I think of that that campaign, the introduction of the likes of Robin and Joe Cole and, uh, and Damien Duff uh, as well. So, no, a, a brilliant season. But but for me, I think I was five years away from the club, either loans or permanent by that stage. Uh, And probably my biggest emotion was one of pride, really, for for John Terry, someone who I'd known since I was 12, 13 years of age. He was probably the only one that remained. Of course, there's a tinges of of jealousy there. There still is when I walked down the Fulham Road. But pride and and pleasure for for him, I think, to win his first Premier League title.
1: This was the season when you were tearing up the record books at Swindon, no, before your disastrous move to Ipswich that we heard about earlier on.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I suppose that, not that I would have, you know, I was a long time away from Chelsea, but my career was obviously on a, a really good, fast trajectory. And I was hopeful from a personal point of view that I was going to get back into the Premier League.
1: Well, Jose and Rafa both had remarkable first seasons, as you mentioned, Sam. Jose winning the Premier League with a record high points total and a record low goals, a uh, conceded column, Rafa winning the Champions League in a manner that we'll be looking at in our uh, uh, Champions League history uh, thread in the other Totally Football show in, in about, I'm calculating nine weeks' time. We're going through year by year, but it was kind of dawn of the dower a little bit, uh, Michael. It was it. If you want to make the analogy of uh, football being almost like pre-Columbian American, uh, and then you got Rafa and Josie arriving, they would be the pilgrims with their dark clothes, and it was the season the Premier League grew up. Would that be fair?
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think it was probably the the first season where the battles of the Premier League were, we started to see them quite regularly in European competition. I mean, really, this season for me was was about Chelsea and Liverpool. Obviously, one won the league and one uh, won the European Cup. And from this season onwards, they just seem to encounter each other so often in European competition. And I think probably the most memorable games from this season are, um you know the two legged semi finals between the sides in the european cup which again were really really defensive settled by one goal over 180 minutes which might not even have crossed the line um from luis garcia it felt like a, a different era of the premier league and i think the impact of those two managers you can see upon united and and arsenal as well i mean after that i think manchester united became a bit more defensive a bit more wily in terms of how they approached sides in europe arsenal got to the Champions League final the the following season with a 4-5-1 system, which they'd never played really under Wenger until that really quite defensive when you look at how they you know, got to the final. I think they kept nine or 10 clean sheets in a row in Europe that season, which is remarkable for Arsenal. So yeah, for me, it felt like this season where in a tactical sense, things became a little bit more European rather than old school English.
1: John Sands asks, was this version of Abramovich's Chelsea the best we've seen so far or was 05-06 or... 2009-10, better match.
4: Mm, it's a difficult one. I saw this question. I, I, I think probably in terms of its ruthless efficiency, this one was. You, you mentioned all the records that they set, most points, most away wins, clean sheets, fewest goals away, most wins, fewest goals conceded. You know, before Manchester City a few years ago and Liverpool this season, they were records that looked like they they, they weren't going to be beaten. The the thing with the um the 09/10 team, the Ancelotti team was that they were the the great entertainers in a way that this Chelsea side perhaps weren't that they just scored so many goals and racked up so many big wins so I guess it's what you how you're going to define that but but I think for me this was this was the best team because it, it, you know if you look through the spine of it Petr Cech in his first season in English football uh, set a record which still stands today you've got Terry who who Sam mentioned who, who was at his peak Makaleli in the Makaleli roller or, or the rollers as he called it and and Didier Drogba in his, in his first season at Chelsea, and you kind of, uh, looking back at this, I was thinking, yeah, his first couple of seasons, Drogba, he wasn't all that, you know, his reputation was somebody who maybe went to ground a little too often, wasn't physical enough for the Premier League. He actually got 16 goals in this season, including the winner in the League Cup final, and he scored in both legs of the Champions League quarter final against Bayern Munich as well. So you had him just sort of getting towards somewhere near the peak of his powers, I think I think this team would probably beat the 0910 team but but only just. Hmm. When did Drogba become droper then? What 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 made that happen? <sighs> I think probably, I mean, getting used to the league would be one thing. It's something that I mentioned uh, a couple of years ago now on the show about about Alvaro Morata and how he would have liked to have been roughed up every day by John Terry. I'm sure that was something that was invaluable to him. But also just getting peak Mourinho coaching every day has got to be something which which is invaluable. And this period that, that we're looking at, you know, this is arguably the beginning of Mourinho at his, at his absolute best and, and any player would have improved exponentially
2: under him just to, to echo what, what Matt said really, the coaching I think of Jose Mourinho, I failed to mention that before, him him coming into the club uh, and you know having brought in Cavalio to partner Terry Ferreira, obviously players that he knew well, I think just propelled them from what Ranieri had done the, the previous season. And um, there's a, a couple of, moments that stand out for me as well that season. That battle at Ewood Park, I think the night where the Chelsea players celebrated by taking their shirts off and flinging them into the, the crowd. Petr Cech surpassed um, a record for the most amount of minutes without conceding by saving a, a late Paul dickoff penalty. That was uh, you know, monumental in terms of that season. And then the pictures of them celebrating the title after beating Charlton at Stanford Bridge. Lenny Pidgeley played, I think, his one of two appearances for Chelsea but somehow managed to get in all the pictures post-match at the front uh, behind John Terry as he lifted the trophy, something that John went on to emulate, as we know, after one Champions League victory many years later. So he's probably got that from Lenny.
1: Meanwhile, Arsenal and Man United, the two superpowers who've been usurped by Chelsea that title-winning season, were reduced to throwing pizza at each other. Uh, Arsenal as their 49-game unbeaten run came to an end at Old Trafford in October in a 2-0 defeat. Michael, what an iconic fixture this proved to be.
3: Smith had found Giggs more oh, by accident than design, but here's Sarr, Smith's open on the right, Rooney in the middle, here's Rooney! Manchester United wrap it up!
0: I mean, it wasn't the most exciting game, it was quite scrappy and quite fierce, um I guess the funny thing was that the the two players who scored the goals Van Nistelrooy and Rooney had had previously been involved in in big storylines with Arsenal Van Nistelrooy obviously came closest to defeating Arsenal in that unbeaten season when he hit the crossbar with a penalty late on and Rooney who had ended Arsenal's previous unbeaten run with his very famous uh, debut Premier League goal for Everton so yeah it was it was a time where obviously those two were I guess it was the beginning of the end for them in terms of their rivalry completely dominating the Premier League now that Chelsea had become the side to beat, now that Liverpool had moved uh, you know, forward to become part of the top four as well. But uh, mm. yeah, I, I think those games, even the one at Highbury was very memorable as well. A 4-2 Manchester United win with John O'Shea scoring such a delicious chip that even he looked confused by it. You mentioned Liverpool moving into the top four. Of course,
1: this season they actually ended up outside the, the leading quartet below uh, Everton. Uh, Rafa Benitez dubbed... Rafa us uh, by Everton's uh, fans who were basking in the glory that was David Moyes back then. What what a phenomenal job he used to do, Matt, with uh, Everton.
4: Yeah, they, just like we mentioned with um, Jose Mourinho, this this was this was, this was definitely David Moyes at, at his peak as a manager. And and you know you look at the squad and think, well, they, there wasn't many star names, but they signed Tim Cahill that summer, and and he finished up as their top scorer, and it was. Arguably one of the best players in the Premier League that season, but it was, it was kind of a, a team where the team was the star rather than any individual, which is very kind of Moyesy, and I think particularly in this time. But it, but it is interesting as we as we look back on it now and think about Mourinho and Moyes really as kind of yesterday's men operating in 2020 to see how at the forefront of the Premier League they were and and in their own way innovators. You know, Moyes taking a, a relatively unheralded team, certainly in Premier League history. Um, to those heights and, and Mourinho having, having come from abroad in his first season. I mean, for, for Everton to finish above the teams that they did was was pretty impressive, you know, particularly considering that they didn't really have a star man. And, you know, their, their strike force was, was Marcus Bent and later on in the season, James Beattie, two very capable players, but not exactly people who you'd be banking on to score 20 goals a season and, and fire you into the Champions League preliminary rounds.
0: And it's worth remembering as well that the previous season they'd finished 17th. And then they sold Rooney for 20, 25 million pounds, and brought in, I think, four or five players for about four million pounds. I think in Premier League history is probably the textbook example of how to react when you lose a, a big player, because they just improved every aspect of the side, and, and like you say, came, well, finished in the Champions League positions, although managed to then not qualify for the Champions League the uh, the following campaign.
1: What what made David Moyes so effective back then that he doesn't have now? Is it eyebrows? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I mean, I think he was very good at organising his side defensively. I think he was probably slightly ahead of the curve in terms of the extent to which he looked at the opposition and tried to react to to different um, tactical schemes and that kind of thing. I, I tend to think that his his experience at Manchester United just just affected him quite badly. But um, yeah, throughout this period, he was always regarded as a very good manager and often linked with bigger jobs when they came up and it obviously didn't get one until Manchester United. But um, yeah, at this stage, he was a really, a really excellent manager.
4: One thing that struck me watching, as I'm sure we all did, Premier League years 04 05 was that he he had Alan Irvin as his assistant, who he still has at West Ham now. And that's something which is often talked about, isn't it? The need for, for coaches who are going to have long careers, even if it's at one club or, or at several clubs, to kind of refresh their coaching, their backroom staff in the way that Alex Ferguson did so successfully. So maybe that's a factor in that, you know, he's got. He's still working off the same principles that he did in this 0405 season, and, and could do with updating his um his handbook a little bit.
1: Mm. I did watch Premier League years, and the thing that struck me most was Big Sam with his
4: tash. Did <laughs> Did you catch that extraordinary? That was um, only bettered by um, West Brom caretaker Frank Burrows' tash in the game they showed on that with his flat cap and him sort of shaking hands with Jose pre-match at the Hawthorns, and and the difference in style was uh, was marked. Oh That was their manager. Their caretaker (laughs) after Gary Megson had been sacked. Yeah, yeah, he he wasn't the groundsman, no. Right, Okay.
1: (laughs) Because my attention had wandered a little bit at that point. I looked up and thought, prize winner, whatever. Let's Um,
2: let's have it right. There's no way Jose thought that was their manager.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Big Sam and his tash were, of course, qualifying that season. Bolton for European competition alongside Middlesbrough. Even more surprising stuff was going on, meanwhile, down the bottom end of the table where you had what was probably the greatest relegation battle ever, the only season in Premier League history where no one had been consigned to demotion going into the final day of the season. Norwich, who'd been rallied by Delia Smith in such memorable fashion earlier in the season, were outside the bottom three going into the last day, but blew that advantage by losing 6-0 at Fulham. Michael, I'm sure you remember that game.
0: Yeah, I mentioned this recently on Twitter as, you know, I don't really like using the phrase bottling when it comes to sport because I think, one, it's slightly mean and, and too often slightly reductive and doesn't look at why teams won and lost. But, I mean, this was, like you said, an extraordinary relegation battle and they had it in their hands. They were in 17th place. They just had to beat Fulham, who weren't a particularly good side that season. I mean, to lose 6-0 was just extraordinary. I mean, it was, like I say, you know, the one example I'll ever use of of a, a team who I think just lost their heads and who weren't prepared for the challenge because it was a really, really bizarre scoreline. But that final day was brilliant. I mean, as you say, the the relegation fight that year was brilliant, which was very much needed because Chelsea had run away with the league. So there wasn't much to shout about at the top of the league. But yeah, to have four teams all battling. And even on the last day, it was really exciting. I mean, uh, Southampton were ahead against Manchester United, but lost. Uh, Palace uh were ahead against Charleston. if either of those two sides had won then they would have stayed up but instead it was West Brom who famously I don't know why everyone mentioned this quite so much but they were bossum at Christmas right uh, and well, they're, they're the first, first team. team yeah yeah I, but I'm never sure why people use Christmas rather than like the midway point of the campaign which I think is a game later and seems so much more relevant than you know when Jesus Christ was born but um yeah <laughs> never mind.
4: Is it because yeah. if you're bottom at Christmas, you get the sack and there's something in that for <laughs> <sanctuary>. Very nice. <laughs> so Palace
1: went down. Andy Johnson, though, still holding the Premier League record for most penalties scored in a, a Premier League campaign. He had 11 that season, which was pretty much their entire uh, game plan. Southampton had a calamitous season. Paul Starrick leaving after just two games. Steve Wigley coming in. Harry Redknapp poached from arch-rivals Portsmouth. Uh, and he said afterwards, it was a crazy move. I didn't realise the hate between Pompey and Saints. Sam?
2: <laughs> yeah, somewhat naive, considering he's lived in that part of the world for so much of his career. Um, he obviously famously fell out with Milan Mandaric, who he did have a great relationship with. You felt during his spells at Portsmouth, but he appointed a director of football kind of behind his back. And that's what led to the, to the move to the Southampton. But... Yeah, in terms of the the football, just one win under Sturrock and one under Wigley and only the four under Harry Redknapp when he came in in December and he brought in obviously his son in from Spurs and Nigel Quasi came in from, from Portsmouth as well, Kamara... Uh, the striker from Wolves. Uh, But it was Peter Crouch, really. The introduction of him playing alongside Kevin Phillips because BT had gone off to Everton. That gave them a little bit of hope. And you just think, looking back there, if Steve Wigley had had a little bit more faith in Peter Crouch, maybe they would have avoided relegation that season. And it's similar, really, to Norwich because Dean Ashton had a big impact at at Carroll Road and, and likewise Peter Crouch at Southampton. But they just ran out of time a little bit the the one game I always think of when I think of Southampton Harry Redknapp that season is Arsenal at home and the normally mild-mannered David Prutton going absolutely berserk after he's nearly broken two Arsenal players' legs I mean the tackles are outrageous he's a great guy Prutts but both of them would have warranted a red card today unquestionably one on Pires, I think and I can't recall who the other one was on but outrageous tackles and he got a 10 game ban I seem to remember wow
1: what about Brian Robson's West Brom though Matt
2: amazing
4: that they stayed up I'm just looking at their results from that season Uh, by mid-January they'd won one Premier League game which was a 2-1 home win against Bolton in October uh, and that was it and even their end of season form wasn't particularly impressive they won one of their last seven Uh, that was that last day win against Portsmouth Uh, to keep them up. Brian Robson took charge uh, after Gary Megson was sacked and Frank Burrows had 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 his little moment in the sun and he brought Nigel Pearson in as his assistant, who we know as uh, having played such a big part in keeping Leicester up the year before they won the title and and looking to do the same with Watford uh, if we ever start this season again. Um, They had a couple of, I mean, looking at their squad, they they weren't short of strikers who could score goals, Kanu, Uh, Robert Earnshaw, who had a a decent season. Kevin Campbell came in, scored a few goals. And um, Jeff Horsfield, who would later regenerate as Ricky Lambert. So they did have goals in the team. Michael, what
1: Jose brought to Chelsea and did to Chelsea has been well documented. If you had to sum up Rafa's impact at Anfield, uh, what would you say?
0: Well, I think, to be honest, this was probably a bit of a transition season for Liverpool. I mean, the fact that they won the European Cup was a bit of a bonus. And if we're being completely honest, when you watch that final back, it's remarkable that they did win it because they were outplayed by Milan for, I'd say, 90% of that game, but had an incredible 10-minute spell. I think it was almost typical of Liverpool during the this decade, the 2000s, in the sense that they were broadly quite defensive. They were good at keeping things tight and maybe pinching a goal on, on the break or whatever, but... When they got to finals, they tended to enjoy incredible games. I mean, in, in 2001, there was that 5-4 against Alaves. A year after this, there was the 3 all against West Ham in the FA Cup final. They won on penalties. And, of course, this game against Milan. But um, I think the things I remember most are probably, it's a bit of a cliche, but the, the home games at Anfield in that European run. There was Steven Gerrard's very famous goal to take them through. Uh, the group stage against Olympiakos, There was the, uh, the game I mentioned earlier. Um, against Chelsea when Luis Garcia scored and also a really brilliant 2-1 home win over Juventus when Garcia scored a really brilliant kind of dipping, uh, not quite a volley, but a dipping drive from 25 yards.
1: The talent to Luis Garcia,
3: tries his luck.
0: It was the start of something really for Liverpool, rather than the culmination of it in terms of you know Benitez building a good team. They only finished fifth this season. They were a far better side in 2008-09 when they finished four points off winning the league, but obviously won the Champions League in, in remarkable circumstances.
1: Such a bizarre season, this. Um, Matt, the, the story of Man City playing with two keepers, can, can you tell us that one?
4: Yeah, so this was on the last day of the season when they were playing Middlesbrough at what is now the Etihad Stadium. Uh, They needed a win, so Stuart Pearce, in his managerial wisdom, uh, threw on Nicky Weaver to go in goal to put David James up front. and And they did manage to win a penalty whilst David James was on the pitch, but I'm not really sure that it was the best plan. Uh, that penalty was was missed by Robbie Fowler. It didn't work, but it just looked very odd having David James up there, and he didn't contribute much. So whether he'd had a really good game up front in training before, I don't know, or whether it was just one of Stuart Pearce's managerial idiosyncrasies, like having his daughter's soft, cuddly toy horse on the touchline with him whilst he was Man City manager. Um, yeah, didn't work.
1: He, he put himself about a bit. David
4: James. Sam, I'm not sure what your your view on his antics was.
1: It did look like borough players were kind of gesticulating at him to kind yeah. of clear off as if say, you know, somebody come, like a tourist had wandered through the, the penalty box.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how that's received really, especially by the opposition's defence. I think it's Gareth Southgate who's got a uh, a headband on he's obviously picked up an injury in the game who's gesticulating and having a bit of a go at David James I presume they played before as well just you know you probably take it with a little bit of disrespect but I suppose that falls on the manager and the strangest thing about it is Stuart Pearce seemed to think he did all right I mean in the footage that I've seen he's absolutely horrendous he nearly breaks the leg of the reaver I think it is the Middlesbrough defender on a couple of occasions horrendous challenges and it's John Mackham, the former Preston striker, who sat on the bench and is ignored by Stuart Pearce to enable Nicky Weaver to come on and David James go up front. He'd only scored one goal in his, his 23 starts, but can you imagine what he went through that evening having seen David James go on and produce that? Fair point.
1: All right, well, let's finish off then uh, with Chelsea. Uh, as you mentioned, Iron Robin coming into the side and having such a devastating effect when he did, uh, would he be the emblematic player of of that season for you, Michael?
0: Weirdly, he might be. Um, And I say weirdly because there's a very strange stat that he got into the team of the year for this season, despite the fact that he didn't start a Premier League game until November and then didn't start a Premier League game after January. So he just has this absolutely incredible three-month spell, obviously bookended by two injuries, um, and is so devastatingly effective during that part of the campaign that as Sam said earlier he was really the player that, that convinced Mourinho to change from a diamond to a 4-3-3 and yeah gets into the team of the year on the back of 14 league starts which is just incredible.
1: All right well that was 2004-2005 and Sam this is uh, was it? Was this the golden year of your career was this your happiest campaign?
0: I'd
2: say I probably played my best football the previous campaign when I had um, Tommy Mooney alongside me and we, we hit it off I think we Hit about 50 goals between us. That final year at Swindon, even though I knew I was going to be moving on, which was, of course, very exciting. And I continued to score goals at the same rate. The team wasn't particularly successful and it was a bit of a a nothing season. But obviously my thoughts had turned to the future and where I was going to join. And um, you had the pick of a number of clubs. It came down to kind of Norwich, Watford and Ipswich uh, in the summer. And um Joe Royal sold Ipswich to me. Brilliant club, of course. Huge club. And it you know, it remains one of the best days of of my professional career signing for, for Ipswich Town. But you know, what came after was was nothing short of a disaster. Um couldn't score for love nor money at Portman Road. The fans did not take to me and then um I had a, a broken ankle in the November, which basically curtailed my Ipswich career. So it was a nightmare and, and looking back, I probably would have dealt with things a little bit differently. I felt the world was against me and probably tried to take people on rather than just concentrate on my football, which I'm sure would have got me out of a, a bit of a dark spell. But, you know, to go on and play for 10 years after a career-threatening injury after that, you know, I, I've got a lot to be thankful for and some and some good memories, you know, and some, some, some trophies and what have you that came in the subsequent years.
1: Brilliant. If you were to have one defining memory then of the 2004-05 season, Matt, what would yours be?
4: Um, Well, I mean, it wouldn't be a Premier League one, unfortunately. This was the season that the team I support, Forrest, were relegated to League One, setting a record, becoming the only team to ever win the European Cup slash Champions League and then be relegated to the third tier of their domestic league. Plus, we had Joe Kinnear as manager for a bit and then Gary Megson to follow him. So it was not a very... It was actually the last season. I had a season ticket. Uh, I then went on to start my sports broadcasting career in earnest and work Saturday. So it was a pretty horrible way to go out. But that Chelsea team was good.
0: Just related to what we said before about the defensiveness, the first thing was... um, Spurs drawing nil-nil with Chelsea and Mourinho accusing Spurs of parking the bus in front of the goal, which was the first time anyone had heard that. Um, The irony, of course, being that Mourinho went on to define parking the bus himself. And the other thing on a related note would be also involving Spurs and also involving Mourinho, weirdly. uh, Absolutely incredible game at White Hart Lane where Arsenal won 5-4 against Tottenham, which at the time was the joint most goals we'd seen in a Premier League game. And Mourinho reacted to that in his next press conference by saying, you know, you shouldn't have these scores in football, it's a hockey score. If I get that score in a training session, I send the players back to the dressing rooms because they're not doing their job. So yeah, I think those two things kind of sum up how how football changed a little bit.
1: And Sam, your big takeaway from
2: 2004-05? I'd probably go for the, even though they didn't ultimately push Chelsea, the, the Arsenal-Manchester United battles, the Battle of the Buffet, I think it's referred to as, and I think says Fabregas has come out and Taking credit for lobbing the uh, pepperoni pizza at Sir Alex, and then obviously the return game when you had all the needle uh, prior to that that fixture. I think having been playing, you're probably not across every game as yet as I would be now. But you know, thinking back and settling down to watch those two monumental clubs going toe to toe is probably still the, the the clubs that I think of when I think back to that era.
1: Tuesday's edition will feature more retro ruminations as Rafa Honigstein, Julian Laurence and James Horncastle take us through year three of our Lord Champions League 94-95, Dispatch War Rocket Ajax. For now, though, it's time on The Totally Show for the climax of today's edition, the deciding round of our quiz. Welcome back to Duncan Alexander. Hello. Hi, Duncan and Alvaro Romeo. Hello, hello. The scoreline at the moment has Alvaro ahead by one point after the specialist rounds. General knowledge up next. Duncan, a lot to do. Are you ready? Let's hope so. Let's. Uh, question one for you then. Who finished bottom in the inaugural Premier League season?
2: Uh, oh,
3: Sheffield United. I'm no.
1: afraid not. The answer is Nottingham Forest. Question two. Who has been runner-up most frequently in the Champions League or European Cup? Bayern Munich. The answer is Juventus. Who? Question three: Are the current champions of Belgium?
3: Uh, Genk.
1: That is correct. Question four: Three men have won the World Cup as both a player and a head coach. Can you name two of them?
3: Um, Beckenbauer. Correct. And. no. Gone.
1: Okay. Uh, The other two were Mario Zagallo and Didier Deschamps. And finally, what do these players have in common? Luis Suarez, the Spanish one, Diego Maradona, Ronaldo, the Brazilian one, Luis Figo and Neymar. Have all played for Barcelona? I'm afraid it's a little bit more than that. All sold Uh, by Barcelona for a world record fee. So at the end of that round, Duncan, you've scored... One point, which has pulled you level with Alvaro's score, with Alvaro next to go. Of course, a tiebreaker if you do remain level on points at the end of this. But, uh, Alvaro, your questions. Question one Who have been runners up the most times in World Cups? That goes for Germany. That is correct. And with that, Alvaro, you are through to the quarterfinals. I'll, I'll give you the other questions, but you, you only needed one point, and you've done that. Lucky. The other questions anyway were, who is currently on a longer run of consecutive league titles, Bayern or Juventus? Juventus. Correct. Who were the first team not called Real Madrid to win the European Cup? San Etienne. No, nope. Benfica. Who are the current champions of Russia? Zenit and Petersburg. That is correct. Which team sold Gianluigi Lentini to Milan in 92 for a then world record fee of £13 million? Pounds? Torino. Correct. So at the end of the round, Alvaro, you have scored a whopping eight points out of ten. Congratulations, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. A couple of them were lucky. Eh? The, the Germany won in the World Cup. And really, it was a totally bold guess. Wow. And he's modest too, Duncan. How are you feeling?
3: Yeah, not great. That was, uh, yeah, froze a bit on the bigger stage. Disappointing.
1: Right. You'll be back. I know you'll be back. Month three of lockdown. when we're running it all again is the Euro <laughs> Uh, many, many thanks for being with us today, guys. Alvaro, we look forward to seeing you in the quarterfinals and let's face it, before as well. Thank you. Take care, guys. Wow, really impressive stuff there from Alvaro Romeo. Matt and Michael, I, I saw you were also having a go at those general knowledge uh, answers, and it looked pretty even actually between the pair of you.
4: Yeah, it's given me a bit of confidence, to be honest. I mean, confidence to avoid a drubbing, if if not to win. But I needed that general knowledge round, absolutely. Um, yeah. Right, we, we, I'll try my best to spring an upset, but uh, very much second favourite going into the tie, I think.
1: Oh, he's playing, playing those mind games, Mark. i seeing it.
0: Yeah, yeah. looking forward to it. I mean, I haven't decided a, uh, a special subject yet. I might struggle on that, but uh, looking forward to the battle either way.
1: Excellent. As are we all. Brilliant. That's it for uh, today's Totally Football show, though. Uh, so many thanks to Sam Matt, and Michael for being with us and you, of course, the listener. Tuesday, we're back, as I mentioned, with Rafa, Julian Laurence and James Horncastle uh, exploring the early years of the Champions League. Thursday, of course, United Passions and more in the next edition of Totally. For now, from all of us it's thanks for joining us and goodbye.
0: And we're the Series Linked Podcast. Subscribe to our channel for all of the biggest TV interviews.
4: And to stay
1: on top of all the latest telly.
3: It said Gervais sometimes fluffs his
1: lines, like I'd have left
3: them in. It's a stunning place to shoot. i like put something up on Instagram and there's somebody who post going, "Oh, you, look at you lazy-eyed, you're ugly, aren't you?
0: And on the way in upcoming episodes, we speak to Imelda Staunton, David Baddiel, Carl Pilkington and many more. Just search for Series Linked. That's Series Linked. <laughs> Marini's Media.